You're listening to Art Affairs, episode 42. Today I'll be talking to Lauren Y.S. So my name's Michael Faith, and this is Art Affairs. Art Affairs is my attempt at shining a spotlight on the many wonderful people that make up this amazing art community, featuring conversations with artists, gallerists, curators, telling their stories. You can dig through previous episodes, complete with show notes, at artaffairspodcast.com, but the best way to stay plugged in is to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're really enjoying the show and want to help support what I'm doing here in an even bigger way, check out the Art Affairs Patreon. Not only does it give you an opportunity to help keep the show going, but there are several community-oriented benefits as well, like getting early access to episodes and suggesting questions for upcoming guests. You can find all the information about that at patreon.com artaffairs. You can also connect with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Art Affairs Podcast. All right, so today's guest is artist Lauren Y.S., Lauren is a super versatile muralist and studio artist who is constantly on the go, traveling to create new works all around the world. In our conversation, we talk about how they first got into mural painting under the tutelage of muralist Nichos, the incredible activism that they've been leading in support of the AAPI community, their new solo show at Heron Arts in San Francisco, and a whole lot more. But before we jump in, I want to speak a little to the audio quality on Lauren's side. There was a bit of a mic issue that I didn't really do a good job of noticing uh, soon enough. And so the audio quality, you know, it's not not quite as good as I'd like it to be. I mean, I think it just goes to show that I'm I'm still very new at this, even though I I tell myself that I've I've come a long way. um, You know, I'll still have some missteps here and there. I think one of the main things is that a lot of times I'm focusing so much on what my guests are saying that I don't always do a great job of, of noticing issues in their audio. And I think this was a time where I, I feel like the quality of the audio didn't match or do justice to the quality of the content. And, you know, I, I very well could just be making it out to be way worse than it actually is. At the end of the day, I didn't really think it was bad enough to try to do any kind of re-recording or waste any more of, of Lauren's time with that. But also I thought what they had to say was really good, and I wanted to try to preserve that as faithfully as I could. Uh, I think I made the right decision, and you know I hope you do too. But like I said, I'm probably making way more out of it than I should. <laughs> and with that said, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lauren Y.S. It really is quite good. Lauren, welcome to the show. I'm stoked to have you on. Thank you so much. I'm stoked to be here. All right. So let's dive into your, your background for a little bit first. And and from what I read, you grew up in a small town in Colorado, literally called Little Town or Littleton, um, which is pretty cool. And not far from like Red Rocks Amphitheater, which is awesome. What, what was that area like where you grew up? Uh, it was pretty charmed, um, you know, really suburban. And I kind of grew up with, I think I had to sort of a psychological like uh, escapist childhood um 
which I think so sort of carried through my my life. It was a lot of very like natural, um, a lot of like deers would walk through our backyard and stuff. And then um, I did actually spend time in a family home that's up on a hill where you could literally see Red Rocks from my bedroom window. Oh wow! During high school, so like I remember like hearing sitting and doing homework and hearing Daft Punk playing and being like, why, <laughs> why am I not there? <laughs> um, but yeah, the very like natural upbringing, very into like the, the mountains and the, the animal life. Yeah. Red Rocks. I, that's like my bucket list venue. I've always wanted to go there and that's one that I've just never had an opportunity to. Did you go to a lot of shows because you live that close? Yeah, I went to a ton of shows. It, I, I, and it got into my work a lot too. I was like drawing because the two rocks that make up the form, the formation have like a really, um, interesting history with the actually like Native American, um, history, geological history of Colorado. Um, but yeah, I've been there a ton of times. They show movies there. You can go run up and down them when there's not a show. Um, I saw Bjork there when I was 16 and it nice. changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you get to go. <laughs> Yeah, well, and now with the pandemic, it's been heartbreaking because, like, I feel I, I'm not super comfortable around a bunch of people anymore, and I don't know when I will be. So <laughs> it's, it's true; it'll be back though, and it, I mean, it's open air, so hopefully. Yeah. So I know that your your father was a pilot, and your mom was a flight attendant. Um, so does that mean my perception of those both of those professions is that that they're just away all the time, just traveling? Were they not home much because of that, or were, were they regularly kind of checking in? Um, at that point they had, so they, they also ran, um, they were partners at a law firm. They met in law school and they were doing aviation law. Um, mm. and so they were around, so I think they were a bit more settled as they were raising us. Um, but my, my mom, so my father actually passed when I was five, um, in a plane crash. Mm. Um, so he wasn't around after that, obviously, but my mom, um, is the most incredible mom that I've ever heard of. And she sort of just m- gave up everything after that to, to raise us. And my grandparents moved in too to do that. So I'm not sure what it would have been like if, if he was around and they were still doing their, their flights. But I think they, they took us traveling, um, a lot as, as a kid. Um, so traveling, being itinerant was sort of in my blood also. And is that something that you enjoyed doing even at a young age, traveling? Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't remember a time that I wasn't like in airports or, or bouncing around or um, moving around. And I think I'm grateful for that from a young age. Mm. With, with their background in sort of aviation and, and doing aviation law later um, and you traveling a bunch, how did you ultimately become interested in art? Like what sparked your interest there? Um, I was always making art. I was definitely the weird art kid in high school. I would draw on walls and bathroom walls and um. Yeah, I'd, I think I just always wanted to be either an artist or a writer, um, and I, I studied both in school, um, but somehow just ended up doing art full time. Like somehow, I don't, I don't know if anyone <laughs> ends up doing art like like intends to do it. It's like kind of thing you'd never think is possible, and then you wake up like three years later and you're like, oh, I'm, I didn't. I guess I can actually make a career out of this. <laughs> Didn't you also, as a teenager, work at the the Denver Art Museum? Was it was, so that's sort of early exposure to the, the museum world, I guess. Is it, what kind of stuff are you doing for them? I was just a, an intern. I did I I did like so many internships for so many different things. Um, I was I was like a serial unpaid intern for like, <laughs> <laughs> galleries, um, uh, art publications, uh, t shirt like graphic stores or you know uh, I just wanted to get my hands in every part of the art world and see what I liked and what I didn't like and then 
that made me realize that I don't like anything except just <laughs> making art. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. And so, so when you went to school, you, you ended up going to Stanford, which, uh, you know, I have a very high Im- impression of as far as the quality of education that Stanford is, but I don't necessarily immediately think of them as an art school. Um, so I guess, do they have a good arts program? And I just wasn't aware of that. Like, what what is that like? Um, that is that is um, I, the general response to that. Um, I, I had applied to basically only art schools on the East Coast and then Stanford and I got in early and they offered me a really good um, support package, which was a huge deal, obviously, because, you know, the other thing you know about art school is that you get saddled with a lot of debt that can be pretty crippling over time. Um, and I decided to go with Stanford because I, I didn't I'm still like unsure whether I believe that getting an art like school degree can means that you'll end up being an artist. Um And I just wanted to, like, the ethos of the school really jived with who I am and still does. Um, I don't know, it feels really free there. And it felt really freeing to be like, you can, I was, I was like peer advisor to the art department and and got art grants to do a bunch of crazy projects and animations. And um, also the English department is incredible. So I think it was like, the program itself isn't that rigorous or diverse or well-developed, I'll be honest. Um, But there was a lot of space for people who are like really interested, like making, want to make space and programming for themselves. And so that's, I think I carried that through after school too, because I was so used to like asking for grants, creating projects, like trying to make space for myself that it didn't seem weird to leave school and be like, I have to make my whole career rather than being used to like getting assignments or, or something like that. Um, but I would say that I don't have, I don't have like, the most rigorous art training. Um, and I think sometimes that's actually served me well because I don't know when, I don't know when I'm fucking something up. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you mentioned the English department cause I know your, your focus was sort of two parts. You focused on both English and art. Um, so like, what was your career goal at that point? Like, what did you want to do with a focus on both English and art? When I graduated, I really wanted to write graphic novels. Um, and I still do. Yeah, I've always been really interested in um, visual visual storytelling, serial storytelling, um, and that is something I still like. I th- what I would love to do is is like write a graphic novel or even like an illustrated children's book or something, and then have it be made into a film that is either animated or stop motion. It just takes a lot of time, um, and what I wanted to do also was like do high adrenaline like traveling art based work and like there's nothing more fun and more exciting than painting murals um so that kind of picked up for me and then it's just somehow I've like eight years later I'm still doing it um <laughs> but yeah I mean that's why my work is so like narrative based it's like always telling a story um and I've been doing a lot more writing lately um just want to bring my career back towards like something that's a bit more intellectually based and like long form and something you have to sit and like delve into and think about rather than just looking at nice nice and wasn't the um the graphic novel course at stanford another of the big reasons why you went there i I read that somewhere i think yeah um thank you so much for doing so much research Um, yeah, I almost forgot about that. Yeah, they have, um, they have a full graphic novel course where you literally ideate and take through and produce a full graphic novel over the course of two thirds of the year because the quarter system. And I, 
I took it as a freshman and then I, I, I'm the only person who's taken it like three times. I like somehow <laughs> rigged the system to like do it multiple times. Um, but the, yeah. And it's really cool because it's always like focused on some kind of social, socially conscious issue. So we were, did one about, um, nuclear bombs in Japan and one about sex trafficking, honestly, which is heavy stuff for like people who are 19 or 20. Sure. Um, but it's funny because at the time I was like, this is cool, but it's not that cool. Like I want to write stories about monsters and like <laughs> sea creatures and, and aliens. And now I'm eight years later, I'm coming back to, the, you know, social justice and being like, this is <laughs> journalism. <laughs> so I grew up a little bit. No, that's really cool. And so, you know, you ended up graduating in 2013. And after graduating, was that when you moved to Oakland? Because I know you were in Oakland for a while. Had the Bay Area just sort of become home at that point? Yeah, I actually ended up, I moved to San Francisco, which I'm really grateful for because I didn't, no part of me is dumb enough to make that decision ever again. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I actually lived in a commune called the convent, which is set up on, in the lower height in a place that used to be a convent. So there's like a confession booth and like nuns used to live there. Um, and it was really formative for me because I w was, in the very last dredges of like what I consider to be like the lowbrow art scene happening in San Francisco. So like zero friends with Alex Pardee was still there. 5024 SF was still there. Um, street artists were still coming through. It was really exciting. Um, and it, it was really formative for me at the time, which, but I didn't even know it. <laughs> but then I like a couple years later, I realized I couldn't afford it like nowhere mm -hmm. close and moved to Oakland. And for that first year out of college, it seemed like you were doing several different kinds of work. And you, you kind of mentioned that earlier, you explored pretty much every facet of the art community. Um, so tell me about that. Were you just sort of uncertain of as far as what you wanted your path to be that you sort of just exploring your options? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I thought um, I know nothing about this world. Um, so I might as well do as much as I can in it to figure out what I like. Um, so I was, I interned at Spoke Art. I interned at 5024. I folded t-shirts at Upper Playground. I interned at Juxtapose. I, um, I just, yeah, got my hands in everything. Um, just did a lot of unpaid work. <laughs> <laughs> did you end up continuing to write for Juxtapose as, as sort of a contributing writer even, even later? Yeah, I did. I did that for about, seven years in total um mm. yeah do you like writing about art like and and or other people's art yeah absolutely i like writing about anything like i i was just looking for any reason to to write um but i also really like i think that's part of why my passion for helping uplift other people's work comes from um is that i think that the curation there can often be very like you know, what's in our world, who are we looking at? And I've always run in these sort of like cuttier communities where it's like people making really weird stuff or don't have as much of a spotlight. And, a, and I was like, I just want to be able to help out my friends who are, who are trying to push what they're doing. And if, you know, if they might not get seen by people who are like working in offices or like live in different worlds. So, um, it was really fun, but it was a bit like, you know, um, I had a, this last year as it has been for everybody was a bit of a, like a mind, a mind fuck for me. So I, I just decided to kind of divest myself from, from more like institutionally focused things um, and just focus on my own stuff. 
Sure, sure. And, and and I think it was also that that initial kind of gig with their relationship with Juxtapose that sort of led you to meeting Nichos, who ultimately you know, kind of schooled you, I guess, a little bit in street art early. Um, tell me about that. Like, how did you first connect with Nichos? Um, I was working under the, the very excellent Hannah Stouffer uh, at the time, who's an artist and also a writer and um, also has, a I think, a production company. Um, so she was my my mentor at juxtaposed at the time and she she knew I was into street art um I had I had done some kind of like rhetoric course my freshman year that involved street art um and she knew about that but I'd never seen a mural being made I didn't know how it happened so she told me that he was up in where was it on Castro Street I think painting um and I oh I was I was interning at 826 Valencia at the time which, which is the pirate store but also like creative writing for kids. I was also interning there. And so I was like, I need to take the day off so I can go see this happening. So I rolled up and he was painting and I was just like blown away. I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Um, like, I want to do that. How do I do that? <laughs> yeah. And we became friends because he, we actually lived near each other when he was like working on a solo show. So I would just come and, ha- and hang out. How did, how did that, how did that ultimately, I guess, lead to you going out to Vienna, working at his studio? I think he saw that I was really excited about what what was happening and what he was doing and that I wanted to see how I fit into the world there too and um he's also really good at encouraging young artists and like he's he's also he's a good mentor um and so we became friends and he invited me out to just I think sort of be an assistant type type thing um so yeah, I got to, yeah. And like, we knew that we got along and we could spend time together um, and that I didn't get in the way and that I picked up cues really well and like was just excited about it. So um, yeah, I ended up spending three months there and doing a little show in his his gallery. And I just learned, a, he took me painting track sides like for the first time. I, yeah, it was just my intro to the world and it kind of like blew my mind. <laughs> What is, um, I guess, what do you think is the most important, I mean, that's probably a hard question to answer. Like, what do you think was the most important kind of um, schooling that you got or the thing that you learned that you really appreciated from that period? That's a good question. Um, I honestly, nobody paints like Nick does. Um, It's a very like, it's when people talk about flow state, and I know that's kind of crunchy, but when people talk about that, I'm like, that's actually what that means when you talk about the way Nick paints because it's like everything about it, driving the lift, like at the same time as painting the lines and the spray paint. And like, it's all this, like this literal, like flow state, everything goes into it, like together. Um, the meat, like the music you're listening to, to all this. And I was like, you, like you look at it and you're like, this person is an insane person. I don't know. <laughs> like, it's not just about the mural anymore. It's about the whole process, the freestyling it, like never using a projector. Um, and I think that just watching him, paint that way like showed me what it the true importance of like the process of painting um and how it can be like this just like totally freeing thing um it's like the most fun in the world the most like expansive creative process that I've ever like experienced and I paint with a similar kind of like flow because that's how I learned and it um it like nothing makes me happier or feel more like free than doing that and I just like kind of we're all like drug addicts, right? We're like at home just like waiting <laughs> till we can like paint another mural because it feels so good. Um, mm. Like large scale out in the sun, you know? 
um, in a boot, in a giant boom lift, like on your own. So I'm really grateful for that because it's like brought me so much happiness and so much like creative, I don't know, like affirmation in my life. Sure, sure. And, and I know that for a while, and I don't know with the last year being what it was, I don't know if it's still the case, but I know for a while you were traveling like six months out of the year. Um, is, is that difficult? Just that constant change of context and or is it something you kind of thrive in? I tend to thrive in that. I, I really miss it. Um, I think that's something that's really unique about muralists and anyone who like is super itinerant for their creative work. Um, yeah, I loved being like, I think there was a month once when I was in like four different countries in a month. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And I, I love it. Like I love long flights. I love bouncing around. Um, um, I miss it and I hope to go back to it. But the one thing I realized in contrast with not being able to do that during the pandemic was that you kind of lose yourself personally um, you just become whatever you're doing and you, like lots of elements of your personal life can really like suffer. Um, so especially cause I I've lived in LA now for like three years and I had no idea what was happening here, like community wise. Or, so I really enjoyed being here during pandemic to take part in all the protests and like community work and get to know the people around me and, and like really care, put down roots, honestly. Which was scary, but <laughs> <laughs> for for the most part, are these murals? Uh, you know, the, the trips that you take for mural uh, work is that mostly festivals? Or are they commissions? Is it some combination of those? Like, what is that situation? It's a combo. Um, when we would put together a tour, like we did, a, I did like sort of a mini Asia tour at some point. It was like a combination of a, like a festival in China, and then a com- and then uh, you know commissions would pop up when people saw that you were in town. Um, so like paint be like okay then let's just go to japan because i've always wanted to go to japan and paint and then you know a restaurant would be like i'll pay you to do this and then you take a little trip and then ask someone if you can paint this okay right on and and i know the last um kind of big event that happened recently was uh you know the kind of special powwow the first decade which um you know the normal powwow event that normally happens in february wasn't really possible um, due to COVID, but they they supplemented that with this first decade. Um, having missed the normal kind of powwow Hawaii event due to COVID, that, like how did that feel, getting back and communing with your, your fellow artists again for the first time in a while? Um, I mean, it, it felt really good. Um, and I think it's especially, that one is special because it does feel like family, especially because I come from Hawaii um, or like grew up part-time there. So it really does feel like family. Um, it was a little scary. I could tell looking around that everyone is just a, like weird, which is kind of great. Um, cause I think we kind of like leveled the playing field. Everybody has social anxiety now, not just right. a few of us. <laughs> yeah. And you know, even though they're your close friends, it's still sometimes you like people have gone through a lot of things in the past year. Um, so I think everyone was just really patient with themselves and with each other and it, it felt really good. Um, yeah, I, w- I think it's just going to be a slow burn, like re-entering everything. And I hope that things don't go back to normal, quote unquote, just because, yeah. you know, there's been such a change in, in like, psycho- like collective psychology in the past year. So yeah, for sure. Um, and, and for this um, for this event, were these all indoors? It was hard to tell. It seemed like they were all inside the, the Bishop Museum. Is that the case? Yeah, um, they were all indoors except for Alice and humans on the front of the museum. Does that change like the dynamic for you when it's indoors versus outdoors? Yeah, I think it's, I think, yeah, absolutely. But I think part of being a good muralist is knowing when you change your vibe to fit the, the, 
the setting. Um, so like, I mean, people know me as like a strictly spray paint person, but I've been wanting to shift my practice to get more into like, this is a museum mural and I really would love to level up what I'm making. So I decided to do this image for my upcoming show that's like extremely detailed and something that I would like, I was very nervous <laughs> to pull it off. <laughs> um, but I was like, I'm going to do it all brush, all monochrome. Um, I had assistance for the first time in my life. Um, but it felt good because it wasn't, you know, it's a museum. It's not about the like, like metal street art, like boom, boom, throwing spray cans. It, for me at that, like my decision was like, let's do something that's like a museum piece and like take your time, even though it drives me insane. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, with it being inside, what happens once the exhibition is over? Do they get painted over? Was it in some way portable? Like how, how did, uh, how does that work? Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, you don't know how badly I wish it was portable. Um, no, they're they're gonna paint over that. <laughs> wow. I mean, how do you feel about just I guess the ephemeral nature of of mural art in general? I mean, I think I feel like sanctioned mural art has a little bit longer of a lifespan than like graffiti and sort of the illegal stuff. But even so, like there was a mural here in Austin that uh, Shepard Ferry painted in like 2013 for South by Southwest, and two years later they tore the building down for a condo. Oof. Yeah, right? So it, there's still a lifespan that's a little bit shorter a lot of times in studio work. So how do you feel about that? Oh, it's it's just part of it, you know. I think we all get really used to it early on, um, which I think it's good. It gives you this, like, bizarre mentality where you're, like, sometimes you, like, you don't care too much. Like, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's good to not be precious about things. Um, there are times when I'll lose a mural that I felt really attached to and it'll make me sad. But to be honest, like you paint it, a lot of times you show up, you paint it and then you never see it again in person. And it truly is like for everyone else who's around there. Um, so I don't really, I don't think I've been too mad about losing specific murals, but I also think like festivals and stuff are really good about protecting them. If they're really like precious to them or they really respect the artist. Um, yeah, like I, you know, there's, there's these, um, these people in Chinatown who reached out to seal and like protect the mural, like the Stop Asian Hate mural that I just did. Um, and that's what they do is they protect cultural murals so the area doesn't get whitewashed. And so there's people out there doing that kind of thing, which I, I think is incredible, um, and very humbling. Are you able to keep up with, with the mural pieces that you do after you kind of leave that area? Uh, I, most of them get shared around and I can like sort of keep track of them and see if they're falling apart or whatever. But there's a few that I worry about because they're in very like just cutty spots. Like there's one in Mirones in Peru. That's like Mirones is like a very like almost rural vecina like neighborhood in per in Peru. And like not many people are going through there. And so I don't sometimes I'm like, is it still there? <laughs> and I don't know if I'll ever go back. Um, and I really love that piece, but I like I hope that it's that there people are enjoying it who are there. Um, and then yeah, there's some that I'm just like I let's go. Let's go. <laughs> it must be gone because I haven't seen it in a long time. So in parallel to all the traveling that you were doing, um, you know, starting out doing murals right after college, um, you also were doing according to your CV like a solo show every year since you graduated in in gallery spaces. Um, so I, I guess how did you first start getting your work in front of galleries after that first residency with Night Shows? Um, that's a great question. Um, I had a lot of 
I had some friends who, who were like really helpful in like advising me on who to talk to and who to look at. But I think, um, and I think people sort of became aware of what I was doing, um, because I was in, I was there, I was in San Francisco. I was like working at Smoke Art. Um, so they've been big support. Like I've worked with them for a long time now and love them and love their programming. Um, and then I think, I don't know. It's, it's not like I ever went to a gallery with a portfolio and was like, here's my stuff. I'm, and to be fair, like my first like solo show on that, on that CV was at a barber shop, um, in San Francisco where you could like literally see Nick's mural from there. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I just have to do this. I just have to get used to like the rigor of putting a show together and like it got to start somewhere. Um, which is awesome. Um, so I think you just sort of grow and grow from there. Um, and people, you know, it is a, kind of a small world after a while especially people like you know especially in like the street art world there's not that many there are a lot of amazing femmes who do it but there's still like few and far between men so people take notice if you're doing that and um if your work is weird people like start to know (laughs) more about you but yeah it just takes time how did you um i guess with all the travel that you were doing throughout the year how did you make time to to create work in the studio to have enough for a show I didn't date anyone. (laughs) (laughs) I was very like known for being like myopic and, and just sort of married to my work. And I didn't, I didn't, I had a whole thing of like not messing around and like not partying and not dating people. And so I was just like really obsessed with um, just focusing. Cause the other thing I know is that like, I don't think I'm going to be happy with my work for like a long time. And I think as a young person, I was like, I just need to get, get all this stuff out of me to get where I'm trying to go. And I don't even know where I'm trying to go, but I know it's going to take time. And I just, this is all I want to do. So yeah, I, and that's why I moved out of Oakland too. Like I lived in a space with a ton of people who were kind of just like trying to find themselves and like smoking a lot of weed. And I was like, I can't, I, I had to stay up all night to work because that was the only time no one else was awake. (laughs) Was it important to you to kind of maintain that that studio practice and continue doing work for galleries, even though you were growing as a muralist as well? Yeah, um, I think there were a couple years where I was like, I just want to paint murals right now um, and travel, which I think is great. I believe muralists tend to have that kind of like ebb and flow. But I did make the decision, you know, I was like sort of homeless just on the road for a couple of years. And that was great. I saved a lot of money on rent. Um it was really fun, but I did realize that like the chaos of my world would not allow me to have like a, fu- a flourishing gallery practice. So it's part of why I live here now because it's just, it's really heavy work focused. And like I have, it's the first time I've had a studio space where I can like let my mind wander and like practice, you know, develop my skills. Um, and I think, you know, gallery work is really important. Um, if not for participating in the, in this world for, for developing your like your oeuvre if you will <laughs> and just like i you know if i didn't have this whole year to develop my visual narrative like the witch doctor piece i did at bishop then i, I would that piece would never have come to fruition because it's just been living in my head for like six years but i never had time to make it is it hard to get your head back into your studio kind of mindset after spending a bunch of time away uh, absolutely <laughs> yeah absolutely it's like it's pretty torturous, actually. But I think it's just your relationship with yourself is like, it's just like any other relationship. 
you haven't you got to like rebuild it and then figure out why you like yourself and what's happening in here and like beat down all the negative stuff and just it's it's like exercise you have to like really like get mold yourself back into a space where you're like i feel good about this um it's it's hard (laughs) (laughs) no i totally understand all right so let's dive into the to the work itself um you know having worn so many different hats around the art community and so seen so many different facets of what the art community offers I, i guess do you feel that that's influenced the style and sort of the themes that you work with uh, in your art, having that kind of broader perspective? I think potentially um, my work has always been like a bit all over the place, I would say, although other people say that that's not true. Um, But just I get really obsessed with whatever I'm obsessed with at the time. So my work work will like have the shift into like certain color schemes or like content or whatever. Um, And I think being in so many different areas all the time is has sort of like created this um just element of like chaos stylistically in my work not anymore but like there were multiple years where I was just like bouncing from style to style to style like without knowing it um which I think is great because it sort of again forced me to plow through like all the stuff to figure out where I really wanted to settle for a minute um but but yeah and I I do think that I'm always thinking about narrative um so I think you know, working in writing has always like sort of influenced what I was doing. You know, one thing that kind of immediately uh, stands out is is how character focused your work is. Um, and with, you know, the kind of the strong um, uh, presence that narrative has, like you said, how, how rich are those characters? Do you do like, do you build out backstories? Do you think about like the, I guess, world that they're part of? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, a lot of the time um, I, th- I don't like sit and write, like I would love to sit down and write like little vignettes about them, but um, I think while you're bi- while you're sitting there for hours and hours painting, it's really hard not to like write little stories for them, and especially in the upcoming show too. Like, of course, there's backstory to a lot of them. Like a lot, of, there's a couple of paintings that are illustrations of like stories my grandmother, my popo, told about growing up in China. So there's already like such rich storytelling there. Um, yeah, and I I like hearing what people think about them when they look at them. But um, yeah, there's always a story. So is it, is it important to you? So you mentioned you, you like people um, kind of interpreting it their own ways. Is that, I guess, is it important for you to communicate your ideas and that they receive it the way that you intended it to? Or does it not matter so much? You're just trying to get the thoughts out there and let them take it however they will. Uh, absolutely not. I love... I love when people can impress their own meaning on something. I think that's the whole point of like painting a mural is that like you want to be able to see either yourself or some kind of like story in your head when you like, you want to be able to attach to it. So I don't like, I love hearing what people think about them. Um, and I, like I wrote, I wrote the artist statement for the show and it communicates what I think and what I see and feel. Um, and if people read it and like that kind of subtext great if not then great also um but uh, what i do love about like when i go to a museum i'm the kind of person who prefers to read the artist statement just because i think it's really like if someone is like this they're like all right they're carrying peaches but you read my thing and it's like these are peaches from the the queen mother of the west shi wing mu who's like in chinese taoism is respected as like the protector of femmes um and you're like oh that's fucking sick <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah, you know, rather than just like 
a peach. So this work is specific is like a little more interesting in that way because it has like historical underpinnings, which is not always true of my work. So um, I would encourage people to read about it, especially if you're interested in Chinese culture, but it's not necessary. Right on, right on. That's very cool. And and so, you know, you mentioned the protector of femmes and I noticed it seems like all the characters are, are women um, or, or, you know, fem, feminine types. Uh, what, what I guess, is that something that you feel strongly about to incorporate this, these concept of feminism into your work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I always have. I was raised by my mom um, and my popo, like, heavily. And that's, like, a a big underpinning of the show as well as, like, like respect for, for matrilineal lines. And then I have, you know, I'm really close with my sisters. Um, and I'm also queer. So, of course, I, like, worship women. Um, and, you know, I, I identify as non-binary, but I, um, like... I've worked out a ton of stuff in the past year about my identification and gender. And I think that the way that I identify doesn't like I've argued with people about this because they say, well, how, how can you like be such an avid, like vehement supporter of feminism, but not identify as a woman. Um, And my response is always like, (laughs) if that was true, then we shouldn't assume that like men should be feminists. Everyone should be a feminist. Um, and, and the fact that I spent like 30 years of my life identifying as a woman gives me such passion for women's rights and women's issues. Um, that doesn't dictate how I identify on the gender spectrum. Yeah. Those aren't like mutually exclusive ideas, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's been like really fun working out intellectually. Um, but I also just, I really like as, as like avatars in my work, I just really, I just think women are fucking beautiful, <laughs> uh, and really fucking cool. And I like want to see them claiming their stories. Um, and I paint men sometimes and people like, I like to, you know, get more into androgynous, um, like genderless characters, but I paint about my experiences and, uh, you know, I, have identified as a woman for a really long time. Um, so I think if I'm trying to make honest work, that's like, that's who shows up in my work. For sure. No, that makes sense. Um, and so, you know, I'm curious about your process, process a little bit. So like for your, your, your gallery work, how do you tend to arrive at an idea for a piece or for a larger body of work? Do you like develop sketches? Do you, do they all kind of born out of your sketchbook? Uh, yeah, I think the sketchbook is, is the most important tool that an, an artist will ever have. Like, um, if I could, if I could just take a year off of doing everything and just make sketchbooks, I would. Um, but I think this show specifically was sort of a, like an aggregation of a lot of different ideas that I had coming together over the years. And like, I didn't realize it, but painting all these murals of like characters inside bottles, I didn't know why I was doing it. Um, and then when I sat down finally to like pull the show together, I was like, oh, it's because I have this like fascination with the sort of the idea of a vessel as like an internal space, but also cabinets of curiosities and, and like specimens. And so I'm going to do this narrative painting that like brings together what I've been doing. Um, and then I had all these drawings from the past several years of like characters and bottles. And I was like, cool, we're going to do a bottle series of the best ones. And then I really wanted to. I really wanted to make paintings about my, my popo so that I could like have some kind of catharsis with that, um, and work through the like, I'm really bad with grief, man. It like takes me forever to get over anyone passing, um, especially family. So, um, there's a big painting in the show that's like my version. Of, so it, for Chinese New Year, the um, parents and grandparents would give their children these red envelopes. 
Um, they're called Lisi or Lee, my family. That's what we called it. So, um, my, the last time I ever saw my popo, she gave me one that has this like image of Chinese kids playing in a courtyard on it. Um, so I made my, like, I just wanted to paint this big version of it. Um, in my style, it's like obviously like psychedelic and has aliens and stuff, but, um, as sort of an homage to be like, this is a bit of closure for me, but also like, I know you're here. No, no, I think that that's really cool. Um, once you kind of, you know, assuming that, that everything kind of starts in, in your sketchbook, um, once you land on kind of a, a solid idea for a piece, how do you usually go from, you know, concept sketch to painting? Do you draw line drawings in between or do you just kind of jump right into painting? Um, that's a good question. Usually if it's a, a sketchbook, I will... I'll do a line drawing of it on white paper, um, which will end up being framed and sold later. So also you're like, from the get go, you have a piece for the show. That's like the concept sketch. And then I, for gallery work, I'll project that onto the canvas, um, trace it and then, then add color. Do you, do the paintings ever evolve much from what you started out with as far as your, your original concept? Yeah. Yeah, totally. They change a lot sometimes because the way I visualize work isn't isn't like in a fully rendered way like when i visualized witch doctor it looks completely different than it ended up looking and because i don't see things in sort of like full rendered color in my mind like a lot of painting is uh just really experimental and like color choices is just like how does this look next to this so it might come out completely different than what i was thinking um which is cool and i i have to like do that in order to like stay fresh in the studio but I'd like to be a bit more meticulous in the future. <laughs> and so for like your mural works where there's this whole other logistical element that isn't really present in the studio where you're traveling to another location, working in other people's environments. Um, are you able to do much research like beforehand? And, and like what kind of research do you do in advance of, of working on a mural? I think um, I try to do as much research as I can just because I've been more increasingly conscious of like what how important it is to be topical when you paint somewhere. Um, especially, you know, if you're like South America or somewhere in Asia, like you want to be making something that, that is at least like a little bit connected to what's happening there. Plus I love trying to find ways to fit my narrative into like local folklore. Um, I think it's so cool the way like street artists specifically get to like resonate with what's where they are. Um, so I'll do a lot of research on like specifically mythology around the area, um, which is really fun because it's, I love global folklore and mythology. It's just, it's so cool. Um, and it also like, I love looking at the way that those narratives influence like gender politics or like human relations in the, in the common day. So like, you know, I'm painting in China that they're like really into, um, the moon goddess. Um, and so I was like, oh, yeah, perfect. I want to paint the moon goddess. Um, and then like the whole story about the moon goddess is told, told a couple of different ways. And one is like a little bit more misogynistic than the other. And I'll be like, I want to help. I want to like reframe this in a way that like supports the femme storyline. Um, just local, local mythology is so cool. Um, and I hope, you know, always, always hope people are like into it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you're working in another city or how much are you able to really get to know that area very well while you're there? Um, it depends. It depends on, um, how, how fast you paint and, <laughs> um, how, you know, what your hosts have planned for you, if anything. And I've had some really amazing, lovely, incredible hosts who, like, who also knew it's important 
to bring bring an artist around like show them what it's like um and it, there's nothing nicer than having a host who's like try this food this is amazing so you get really like a, a grasp on what it's like to live there and be there um and then there's there's a couple times you know when you show up and you have to pay in like three days and you have to leave which is really tragic um but you know the piece has to happen no matter what <laughs> <laughs> for like developing the concept for your murals is it much different than the studio do you go through a, a line drawing and then kind of do the same sort of process for what becomes a mural um that one is a little bit different uh, and i don't always have the exact same process because sometimes sometimes you find out you can't get a hold of like the you know this kind of spray paint or like these colors of spray paint and that you have to shift your color scheme or your concept um and you just have to be really flexible about how to like piece it all together which i've learned to be better at over the years um but usually like usually i'll just have a line drawing and then a color scheme worked out in my head and then show up and sort of like freestyle it which is like super super fun um and then there's other times where i'll do like a much more rendered out concept and have like like a plan printed out but that's like a lot less common so when you say freestyle, you just get up and just start spraying on the walls with no kind of grid system or any kind of kind of way of transferring your drawing to the wall. Yeah, it's um, it, I think it's you know because I I came up learning from Nick, who comes from a graph background, so I think it's like it was always like no no projecting, no grids, like no, <laughs> um, <laughs> which was like hard in the beginning, but I think it's it's also part of that flow state thing right like it's it's just really empowering to be like i can i can do this without without using a machine especially if you're like if you're in a country where you can't get power or something um you want to you want to be able to like use your body to to map it out but i've been learning like i think i'm i'm open to all kinds of modes and processes as as i think as i get older and might be cha- like changing how I work, um, like the witch doctor piece, like there's no way I, I had the time to like freestyle that. So, um, I think indoor stuff or sort of a different game for, for like when you do do freestyle, um, and you're so up close, how are you able to tell that it's going right? Like from a distance, do you have to kind of constantly go back and forth to check it? It's, um, it's a lot of going back and forth, but it's also like, it's not, it's not as hard as it seems. And I know that sounds douchey, but it's, I think, especially if some, there's something about size and spray paint together that kind of shrinks what you're doing. Like the bigger the wall, the easier it is to, to like work out an image and sort of just like put it into place. And then I think the more you navigate, get used to navigating visual spaces, the more you're aware of like the, this thing goes here in relation to this line in this drawing that I have in my head. Um, and you like, you just get better at knowing how the spatial relationships and backing up and being like, Oh, I messed that up. I got, I can fix that immediately because spray paint is so amazing. Um, but it just, yeah, it's, it's a process, but it's not, it's not as hard as it seems is what I'll say. (laughs) (laughs) Was that something that you had to get used to or was something you were bad at first and then, or have you just always been a rock star with it? (laughs) Oh my God. I was so bad. (laughs) (laughs) I was so bad. I was so bad. Even I was so bad at spray paint too for for like mm. that oh, a long time, and I realized how bad I was, and I was like, "This I gotta ditch the brush. Like I have to ditch the brush for a year in order to try to get better at this." And it sucked. Like I did so many bad <laughs> murals, <laughs> but I got better way faster. Um, and it was brutal, but I, yeah, I would recommend that <laughs> to anyone. Um, 
But yeah, the cool thing about spray paint is just so quick. Is it like you paint a really bad face, you can get rid of it really fast. Is that one of the reasons why you, you use acrylic so much in your studio works is because it's fast drying and you can, can keep working and it's, it's more similar to that? Yeah, um, I definitely think so. Um, it, it has the same, it performs the same as spray paint in that sense. How, and also like those flor, fluoro colors are much easier found in, um, acrylic stuff, but I do want to move back to oils. I know it's going to be torturous, but I, I would like to, I would like to try that. I think in my next body of work, just as a personal challenge or. Yeah, I don't know. I used to make oil paintings in college and I was just looking at them being like, these are good. These are like the depth of, of like form is like totally different than what I'm doing now. And I don't know if it's stylistic or if it's like the medium, but I'm just at a place. I'm just at a place where I like, I really want to change. Like I really want to like level up or just find something like find new spaces in my mind and body. Um, but maybe I'll just get to it and be like, this is too hard. This is so slow. <laughs> <laughs> With oil being having, you know, kind of toxic ingredients and stuff, will that change like where you work and where you're able to work? That's true. Well, they do have, oh, that's true. Um, they do have like odorless minerals um, and like less toxic materials nowadays. But you're right that I probably shouldn't be doing that in my thing is, like, I also live in South Central. So the air is kind of messed up here anyway. And then <laughs> all my roommates are always like soldering things and like using toxic material. So I'm just, I'm fucked is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> all right on. Um, so before we kind of dive deeper in, into your new show, which we've talked a little bit about, but I first kind of want to talk to you about some of the recent activism work that you've been doing, um, you know, and leading yourself and specifically the great work that you've been doing, you know, for the a AAPI community. Um, but even before that, I think you even like, you know, before the events of the last few months or so sometime last year, um, you and your partner had created a, a micro grant program for the LGBTQ BIPOC community. So I'm curious to, to learn a little bit more about that. Like what, what was the impetus for that program and, and what were you doing or are doing with those micro grants? Um, yeah, great questions. Um, yeah, it sort of came from, I had this whole, um, like I make a lot of very like sexually charged work. Um, and as a queer person who likes, who wants to be honest about life in the work that they make, um, I end up painting a lot of images of like me and my girlfriend, like having sex or whatever. And I'm like, this is cool because I want to talk about what it's like to be queer in my work. But there's always, there's always this other side of it. That you have to be self interrogative where you're like, am I, am I pandering to like the male gaze or like profiting off of, you know, like an audience that I don't necessarily want like visibility from, especially if I'm selling this work or making prints of this work, like there needs, like, I'm very much like there needs to be some offset element of this process where I don't feel like I'm, I'm like, my soul is eroding from like commodifying my sexuality in this way. Um, so so I was like, I, I did this like really intricate line drawing of us, um, like based off of The Handmaiden by Park Chan Wook. And I was like, normally I'm like, this is sick. I don't care who, like, I'm also just very open. Um, where I'm like, anyone can have this in this, their room, like whatever. But I'm like, the like contextual space of it needs to have something else balancing what, what I'm doing to feel good about this in my soul. So like, screw it. I'm going to like donate some of this to the queer community. Um, and that'll make me like, that'll make my soul feel good about what I'm doing. And then I was like, screw it, like this, 
you know, giving out a grant one time or like sending money to someone one time is like not sustainable. What we want to do is like, I want to shift everything I've learned about the last year in social justice is like, I need to shift what I do to be more sustainably giving back to the people that I believe in. And there's enough to go around. And I'm very fortunate to be like working the way I do. And like, I'm not rich, but I make enough to like support other things and other people. And it makes a big difference. So we're like, screw it, just make an Instagram. There's, this doesn't exist. If I'm looking for artists and I want to know more artists who are both BIPOC and queer and see what they're making and thinking about, um, nobody's like aggregating that stuff. Let's just do it. I'm good at Instagram. Like I can, you know, low pressure. And of course, like it's called Squid Tropica, which is like a stupid name. <laughs> it's like low pressure. <laughs> um, and just see where, where it goes. And it, um, and then it just sort of like picks up momentum and it, and it exists when we're not looking at it and you can just go and look at it and like you can send them money too and like you can access their work. So it's like self-sustainable in that way. So it's been really cool. Um, and you know, for like, I was just able to send out micro grants to like AAPI artists we've been really looking at and know who like need aid. How do you find, I guess, the artists that you want to, to benefit with these micro grants? Um, we, t- we do rounds of submissions, um, first off. And then, you know, I think we've gotten through that a little bit. There's like a little bit less of a push right now as people like, yeah, move in and out of wanting to, you know, submit for things. So a lot of submissions, which is really cool because a lot of people, a lot of artists who like don't have that big of a following, which is like awesome. Like I much prefer that. And then, you know, I wanted to put the spotlight on like friends of mine who I know. Uh, or, like, people in the community, and then, uh, like, a lot of curators have recommended people, like, more people in the queer community have recommended friends. Every time we give out a grant, I also ask them to recommend anyone they might know, and then I kind of, I never understood what hashtags were for, <laughs> but now I'm like, oh, this is actually kind of useful, uh, which begs the question of, like, you know, there are hashtags that are, like, queer back- black artists or, like, black trans artists, which is really helpful, but I, there's also the other side of it where it's, like, we have we have to be really careful about what we do because we don't want to like necessarily out anybody who doesn't want to be outed or like right. make force anybody to like identify it without wanting to. Because of course I do have to like, you do not have to, I don't want to imply that anyone needs to be like out in any way in order for their work to be valid. It's just, it's just a way to like sort of counteract what I've seen in the, in the art world, which is like often like, white cis male work it's it's like spotlighted over history so we just yeah but i just i i did worry about that too i don't want anyone to feel like they need to be need to be like queer or bipoc to be valid it's not it's just another like resource yeah no that's a that's a powerful thing that you guys are doing um and, and i know in the last last couple months you did um or following the last couple months you did a, a mural in uh, I guess the Chinatown area of LA, uh, drawing attention to a lot of the causes and a lot of the the truly awful just racism that's been seemingly on the rise um, towards the Asian American community. Um, so, like, what's the story behind that mural? Was that something that that you initiated and kind of came to them with, or were you asked to do it by others? Like, how did that start? Um, I um I had painted that wall before, actually, in Chinatown. Um, it was a rotating wall, and um I. When all this happened, I, you know, all, we were all devastated, um, taken aback and 
so much of what I think artists who are trying to do activism work is, is like when something really awful happens, especially when it affects your community, it's like, what, what is the most I can do within my means? Um, and it's so horrific because it's like, I, well, I couldn't stop this from happening, but the only tools I have are like to make art and then to make bigger art. Um, and so I was like, I have access to, to this gallery and the people here. I've painted it before. I have the tools, like the best thing I can do rather than just posting something on Instagram is to like make something bigger that, that like people can gather around. And so, um, I kind of put, put my other work to the side and like, and went and, um, I painted it and it was really emotional too. I didn't expect that. Like a lot of people came out. I learned a lot about Chinatown during the process of painting yeah it was very cathartic um and then i wanted to you know the center element of the mural is like two candles to represent like ancestral pathways and i wanted to create a space where people could also just come to collectively mourn if if they wanted to or found that there because it's yeah that when something globally like catastrophic happens like it's people are just like i don't know how where to put this feeling and it wasn't someone i knew personally but it it hurts me um and i don't know where to go for that so i think that's part of like the power of artists to create spaces like that and then we also had an event where i like i raised funds that also went back to um the red canary society which supports sex workers in new york and then squatropica stuff so it was like it did it did like a net good which is all i'm really really into right now is like trying to like do net good <laughs> Sure. Yeah. And you guys also made posters, um, you know, with that same imagery that that static medium printed. Um, and I think they did that that for free and are just, you know, the benefits, I guess, proceeds are going to, to charity. Um, how did that that kind of come together with static medium? Um, I reached out. Um, we reached out to a couple of different spaces to print them. And um, everyone is really incredibly supportive, which is like I've never experienced that before with like a, you know, this is a company for them to be like, no, we want to do this for free. Um, and Static Static was amazing. I know that they like set aside a lot of work in order to like pull them. And I offered to pay, but they they just wanted to donate them and, you know, ship them and pack them. And um, it was like, deep, like I cried. It was like so, so deeply like humbling to feel that show of support from, from the community. Um, so I'm super grateful to Static Medium. And we've been, we've been able to donate a lot of money to both artists and, um, um, nonprofits that like protect Asian Americans, and it's, it's such a such a um, a good thing that you guys are doing in response for such a a terrible thing. And I guess for me, being a a white cisgender male in America, and never you know having been victim to this kind of directed hate, um, one of the things that I struggle with is understanding if the situation is getting worse, like it appears to be getting worse. Or if it's just my awareness is more and, and I'm becoming more, my eyes are opening to it more and, and I'm recognizing it and seeing it for what it is um, more than I did before. Um, I think that's an important distinction. Um, I mean, my instinct as an engineer is to try to understand problems that I want to solve. Because if it is truly getting worse, like it kind of seems like it is, um, the next natural question then is why? What is... What is prompting this and, and what can we do about it? So how do you feel? Like, what's your perspective? Do you feel like it's truly getting worse or um, that generally the public is more aware of these things that have always been there? 
Um, that's a great question. I mean, you know, the same things went through my head too. Um, as you know, we were all kind of gaslighting ourselves in the beginning because, you know, being, being Asian, you, part of our, our narrative is very unique in that, like, we're, we're always, when you talk about being Asian American, you're always also talking about being white adjacent, quote unquote, or, um, you know, how, how colorism plays into the way we're seen as like, like an upwardly mobile, like racial class. Um, and where like racism leveled against us is often like positive in a way where it's like, you're, you're too smart, too hardworking, like da da da. So, um, I think that I learned a lot through this process by doing research and like understanding that that is, all those narratives also help to hurt how Asian Americans perform in like the, like the racial diaspora because it also covers up people like there is colorism within asian americans like people who have darker skin or like like there's so many different subsets of what it means to be asian american where like people suffer because like the upwardly mobile ones get like paid attention to and then we don't look at the history of what has happened to, like pacific islanders and and all the other subsets um and i think we all had to have like this waking up where we are like we need to do more research we need to become more educated about what is happening with every single like area of the asian american experience and to recognize that we have been victims of of oppression and like hate crimes and massacres like there's you know the chinese massacre like this happened in la and like nobody knows about it nobody talks about it um i didn't know about it um because so you know, I'm half white. So a lot of me is, is being like, how do I like work on my white guilt or like my, how do I subsume my privilege in a way to uplift other BIPOC too? So, so like we're, you know, a lot of, in a lot of the ways in the same boat, you're like, I don't know. Um, so I think it was really cool that there was like media taking it seriously what was happening because, <laughs> uh, yeah, COVID just changed everything, but it's not, it's not the first time that something like this has happened that like promotes racism and like infects people's minds. So I do, I've been trying to answer this question for myself is what I'm saying by like looking at the news and keeping tabs on like statistics. But I actually, I do, it does feel like the large motions that, that have been made through stop Asian hate, like have at least quell like it's horrible. It's horrible to say, but like there haven't been, there hasn't been like another shooting um, so that's good news. And I have to believe as someone who's like involved in this, that like the rhetoric that comes from teaching anti-racism and putting it on billboards and like painting murals about it protects people, um, along with like all the efforts to like support and like give funding to people who protect and like the whole, the whole movement, quote unquote, is like, I have to believe that it does make things better. And for people that are that are listening that that want to contribute, you know, time, money, energy, um, you know, to help support these causes, do you have any recommendations for good places that they should start? Um, great question. Thank you for asking. Um, there's a, a ton of great accounts that I follow that um, that are constantly posting about stuff like that. Chinese diaspora, um, who I'm going to be working with soon on a project, is always posting great resources. Asians for anti-racism really good um teach and transform um is is a really great activist who's always talking and teaching about these things um those are three good ones to start with i think any anything you tap into that will like lead you down a rabbit hole of like where you want to go um or you can just email me and i'll try to answer (laughs) (laughs) 
Awesome. Very cool. So, so let's dive into your new show. And you've, you've talked a little bit about it um, already as far as some of the motivation for it. Um, it's opening on July 10th in San Francisco at Heron Arts um, called Eidolon Vessel. I believe I'm pronouncing that. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the meaning of Eidolon is that it's a, a specter or a ghost. Uh, so I guess what is the story that you're, you're trying to tell with this body of work? Um, yeah, so it's, um, yeah, Eidolon means ghost or specter. Um, and it's obviously like, I'm a wordy person. So I like that word. Um, but it's sort of this concept of the vessel, like a physical vessel being a, a bottle or pot or something also being sort of representative of the physical being as a vessel as a, like an ex- enclosed space for experience and narrative. And then also within that, like, just like microcosms within microcosms of um of storytelling like being yeah your mind is a vessel your body is a vessel like your space is a vessel and then um also kind of and it's weird because i sort of steer away from like womb like narratives because i'm not into like i don't i'm not into like childbirth as a thing but i was thinking a lot about how like when you're when you're a mother and you're pregnant with a baby girl who's or at least genetically a girl at the time that girl also has all the eggs that are potential for like the next generation inside already so like there's a time when like you're all in the same place together um like sharing blood and like goo and everything and like that when I learned that I was like that's that's insane there was a time when like all I was like inside of my grandmother um which is like weird (laughs) But, like, psychologically really beautiful. And, like, I was thinking about all this stuff, like, after she passed because I just fucking loved her so much um, and did a lot of writing about that. So there's a sort of, yeah, the vessel has all these things to hold other things, which is also, like, relevant because we've all been trapped inside for so long. Um, So it's sort of then that hub concept, like, splays out into, like, I was, you know, depicting stories that she had told me as a child growing up in China and then, like, that kind of reached out to like mythology Chinese mythology and like there's an image that's like called the hearse which is like my like me really wishing I could have been the last person to like physically be near my popo rather than like I was like mad that someone else was driving the hearse I was like that person gets to see her last and I was mad so it's like it's like a character riding a motorbike with like a coffin on the back of course everything's like psychedelic and like spacey um, yeah, there's an airhu player, and airhu is a, is a Chinese instrument that's really beautiful and, like, somber. My popo used to, she said she used to, like, tie strings around beetles and swing them around as a kid to, like, oh, wow. to, like, make a noise when she was just, like, growing up in rural China. So that's, like, one of the images. <laughs> um, and she used to sing a song. And then there's, there's an installation element that's really new for me. It's my first, like, big installation. And all of the, the like, the, all the, podium pieces are based off of like ancestral ulcers which are like chinese people often like build them in their homes so they can commune more directly with their ancestors um and then there's like these big rotating pieces i'm so excited to show them to people finally (laughs) but they're like these layered rotating pieces that are based off of like the three um sanxing which are like three chinese gods that like are in like every chinese household you'll see like statues of them but nobody knows what they are so I like got really into those guys. I, I did like femme reworkings of them. But yeah, and the sculptures are built with um my partner Louis, who's you've been emailing with. Um and he like I was like, what if we did this? And he figured out how to like make it 
but yeah, it's all, it's all sort of like tied into Chinese heritage, psychedelia, like my, my style, um, heritage, yeah, heritage, like feminism, sisterhood, mythology. Awesome. So when you're working on a, a new body of work like this, do you do, the, especially one that has kind of a strong central theme, um, do you typically develop that theme first and then kind of work within those boundaries? Or did you start just working and then see whatever develops and then kind of create the theme around the work? Um, the second one. Um, <laughs> I'm very much like that. I'm very much like I just made a bunch of stuff. Don't know what was happening. Don't know, like, just didn't have a plan. And then afterwards, like, pulling it together. It's how I used to write essays. It's how I... <laughs> <laughs> Like, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I'll figure it out in the closing paragraph um, and then pick a title. And then, um, yeah, which I think is more fun, too, because it's nobody knows where they're going with anything until they're there. And then you're like, what? Are, how did all these things fit together? Um, and I really enjoy, like, drawing those lines between paintings after afterwards. Interesting. I mean, I think that's that makes it even more powerful to me, I guess, because it's it's sort of almost like kind of just tapping into whatever your feeling at the time and letting it kind of naturally unfold rather than forcing a narrative on it, which, uh, well, that's huge. <laughs> I just, um, and this is like your largest body of work, I think. So how many pieces do you think there'll end up being? Cool. Um, that's a good question. Six, nine. I think there's 13 paintings, which means that there's at least 13 drawings also. And then three of the big installation pieces. Um, so I don't know. It's probably around like, 30 total um and then we're doing some little sculptures too yeah i'm really excited to see it pulled together and then we're also doing some um activation stuff because it is it is so relevant to what's been happening um but i wanted to like sort of pull out a little bit and bring because it's very personal work but also like so much of it is about the the question of how to claim your heritage as as an american bipoc person which is, I think, relevant to so many of us where it's like, well, I might be second generation. What happens if I've lost my grandparents? Am I even like Asian anymore? Like, how do I claim who I am in my blood if I'm not like situationally, like I don't actually practice Taoism. So that's like part of making the show is me like claiming my Chinese Chinese-ness in a way. And so we wanted to like have a panel discussion where we talk about this specific thing with like someone who is first generation or second generation, or perhaps a different like uh, subset of, of Asian. No, it's really cool that this sort of served as, I guess, a launching pad for you to kind of discover more about yourself and kind of tap into your, your own heritage. That's, that's really cool. Um, and you mentioned the, the installation uh, and that was like your first time doing installation work, I guess. Uh, you know, tell me about that. Like that sounds exciting. <laughs> what made you want to, I guess, do a, an installation? I've always wanted to do installation work and like fill space, which I think is makes sense as like a world builder. And if you like see my room, like every house I've ever lived in just ends up getting filled with stuff and like getting, it looks like this, like the witch doctor thing. There's just stuff everywhere and I love filling spaces. So I wanted to do, I wanted to do that. But the, the rotating concept, I don't know where it came from. I just wanted to be able to see multiple paintings through each other and then for them to be able to physically interact. Um, and I've been working in like a circle layout for a long time. So it made sense to do that. And then, yeah, yeah. My partner, Louis is just like, he's very good at making things real and was just like, okay, we're going to, this is how we're going to do it. Um, 
And we made one of them in Hilo on the big island for residency with temple children. And he like literally jigsawed the whole thing. Oh, wow. It, we made it in three days. <laughs> <laughs> is 3D is 3D work um, something you'd like to explore more of? And, and did you enjoy that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I really want to make I really want to figure out how to make like the actual snake wine bottles, like with make a little sculpture and like literally put it in the resin and um, build like costumes and masks and like, uh, you know, yeah, more 3D work, definitely. Um, Ceramics, I don't know, anything. I'm up for anything. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a particular piece in the show that that challenged you maybe more than some of the others? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, the, I mean, the witch doctor piece, what was extremely challenging just because it was like so much, like I was trying to work with color and light more than I've ever done. And that's why I'm glad I got the chance to do a version of it at the Bishop Museum because I was, could focus only on color or light, it being monochrome. So there's a painting, there's also a painting of it in the show that's like full color and it's just like, I'm looking at it now being like, ah, this is super cool because you can see all the different elements, but there's no like atmosphere to it. There's not no atmosphere, but there's like much less atmosphere because it's so like punchy. And that took me like two weeks to paint and it it almost broke me because I was just like, I'm so going to lose my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Just because of all the, uh, all the details and how much you've put into it. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, and just like, you know, not only do you have to paint every single little thing, but there's also like the way that glass works and like the thing behind the glass and how this cast light on this thing. And oh wow, um, I I don't use reference much either too, so it's like all kind of out of your own head lighting situation. So it's like it's somehow somehow that's a little bit harder sometimes. Where you're like, I can't just look at this and get the information from it. I'm like, what is it? like? <laughs> how does this work <laughs> in my head? <laughs> That's incredible. Are you going to be able to uh, attend the opening? I know it's a, it's going to be a, a a week and a half after this the show's airs, but it's a month from when we're talking. So yeah. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, July tenth. I will definitely be there. I think my whole family is going to be there, which is really exciting. Um, and yeah, hopefully I can just see some old friends and like finally get to see this thing put put together in person because it's been a long time. Awesome. Very cool. So, so I think that's a good point to kind of close out. So tell people where they can find you online. Sure. Um, you can find my Instagram at squid liquor, <laughs> squid dot L I C K E R. Uh, I have a website that has not been updated for a long time, Lauren Um, and all my info is on my Instagram if you want to reach me, but yeah, love to see people come out for the show. Awesome. Very cool. So last question, and this is something that I like to ask everybody. Uh, who is one artist that you'd like to see me have on the show? Ooh, that's a good question. Out of anyone? I mean, anybody that's alive. I mean, we're going okay. we're gonna, to we're gonna draw the limit there. <laughs> okay, that's fair. I'm like, oh, it's hard. <laughs> um, Like a visual artist. Anybody. I mean, the sky's the limit. I was going to say Bjork. Um. <laughs> yeah, I'll work on that. Like that might be a little hard. <laughs> <laughs> or like Yayo Kusama. Those are hard ones. Um. <laughs> um. But you like if if we're talking about street art, um, I'm really into um uh, Mr. Aris. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, he's he's my favorite muralist. Um. So I'd love to hear more about like you know what's hit behind his process. 
Awesome. Very cool. Great choice. So, um, Lauren, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been an absolute treat, kind of getting to know more about you. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I've had so much fun. <laughs> so that's it for this episode of Art Affairs. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lauren. Lauren's been doing some amazing activism lately in support of both the LGBT community and the AAPI community. I really struggle a lot with what's been going on with the, you know, the overt racism and hate directed at the Asian community in America. Um, you know, like I was telling Lauren, it's, it's something that I really struggle to wrap my head around and fully, fully understand, um, you know, because it definitely seems like it's gotten a lot worse in the last few months. Um, you know, definitely since the, the, the terrible events in Georgia. And then, I mean, even since then, just the cowardly acts that certain segments of the community um, have been doing towards the Asian community. It's, it's just truly awful. And it seems like it's getting worse, but I, I don't necessarily trust that instinct because I, I've, I'm not the one that's, that that sort of hate has ever been directed at, you know, as a white male in America, I've never, you know, that's a very privileged position and I fully recognize that. And so I don't know if it's truly getting worse or if it's just, I'm becoming more aware of it and I'm, I'm more able to recognize it for what it is. Um, so is the change that it's getting worse, which I think objectively we can say is a bad thing, um, or is it that these issues have always been there and people are just now starting to wake up to them, then that can, I, I can be hopeful about that because that means as people become more aware, then there's people like Lauren that actually try to do something about it. Um, and you know, it was interesting to hear that, that Lauren had, had been wondering and thinking about the same sort of thing. And it's great to see Lauren take this initiative and really plug into this greater sense of social justice and a desire to contribute so much of their energy towards making things better. If you want to get involved and help out as well, you can either contact Lauren directly or just follow the Squid Tropica Instagram. I was really stoked to hear about this new body of work. The show Eidolon Vessel is Lauren's largest solo show to date and focuses on their emotional journey and attempts at connecting with their Chinese heritage in a deeper and more meaningful way, following the unfortunate passing of their grandmother. The fact that this show provided Lauren that outlet to express these really difficult feelings of grief and, and cultural disconnect makes it a pretty special series. I'm excited to see all the works when it opens up. It's all happening at Heron Arts in San Francisco and opens on July 10th, a week and a half after the show should debut. So thanks again to Lauren for joining me today, and thank you for checking out the show. I'm truly grateful for your support. And just a reminder, one big way you could help out if you're really enjoying the show would be to check out the show's Patreon. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash artaffairs. And as always, you can contact me through my website at artaffairspodcast.com or on Instagram at artaffairspodcast. So until next time... Be good to yourself, and be good to each other.